And I'm going to ask uh, Tim if he'll come forward and read our scripture. That will be in Titus 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. Our scripture reading this evening is from Titus 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so trained young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we come before you in prayer. Um, God, asking for your blessing upon your word. As we open your word, we pray that you would use it um, to shape us, that you would... Uh, reveal yourself uh, in these passages, God, that you would reveal your son, Jesus Christ, God, that we would uh, understand the calling that is upon our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, that we would understand uh, the calling that uh, is on our lives um, in terms of how you have designed us in creation, God, that we would understand the things in which we are fighting against in terms of, of um, the sin that we have walked into and and the uh the reality of our sinfulness that we live in and and strive against. Father, we just ask that you would be glorified um, as as we uh, study your word together tonight. Father, we pray for um, the churches of this community on on this Lord's Day. Uh, God, we recognize that this, uh, along with maybe a few other times of the year, um, Easter Sunday, the week of Christmas, Lord, and particularly Mother's Day, that that odds are um, that there were many people in church today who are not normally in church. Um, people who today heard the gospel uh, preached um, who do not ordinarily in any given week hear the gospel. Uh, God, we ask that that would be a seed that would be planted in those people's hearts that you, by the power of your spirit, would begin to to germinate and put down roots, that it would grow, that it would thrive, God, that it would build uh, and grow fruit, um, that that the gospel seed that was planted today in many hearts um, would be, God, that that would be the turning point um, and that you would use those uh, times to to draw other people to Jesus Christ. Um, God, we ask for your blessing on the gospel-believing, Christ-centered 
word preaching churches of Blunt County. Um, we ask that you would use each of them in their own ministry contexts, in their own communities, God, to, to, God bless your people, um, to train them up to do the work of ministry. God, that they would also be centers where people can come and hear about who Jesus Christ is, uh, what he has come to do, um, and how he can save them from their sin. God, let each of our churches be, be, um, footholds. Let them be beachheads, um, as we go into, um, our workplaces and our communities and our schools, uh, and, and take the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we ask these things in the holy and precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So, um, today's Mother's Day, obviously. I saw, I, somebody sent me a video this week and it was one of those funny videos that's making fun of the church that is okay when a brother sends it to you. Like another Christian sends it to you, you go, yeah, we get it, right? If, if a non-believer had sent it to me, I'd been like, hey, now wait a minute, dude. Um, but basically what it did is it, it did this, had this guy and he was acting out what different churches do on, uh, on Mother's Day, right? So there was a Baptist church, a Methodist church, a Pentecostal church, a mega church, a hipster church, and then this like reformed Presbyterian church or whatever, right? And, and the, the funny thing was, you know, they go through all the stereotypes about what each of those churches look like. But the, the consistent thing is they made a comment in every one of them that we're going to be preaching from Proverbs 31. Okay. That every single one of the churches preached from Proverbs 31 because it's like, that's all that people know to do on Mother's Day Sunday. You got to go from that Proverbs 31, um, about the picture of the godly woman or whatever, except when they got down to the last church, the reformed church. And the guy said, we're not preaching from Proverbs 31. We are going the next verse in the next chapter in the exact series that we've been doing and will not deviate from it for any reason. Or whatever. And, and that would ordinarily be us, right? We would ordinarily do that. I don't, most Mother's Days, I've not sort of veered away and preached a specific Mother's Day kind of sermon, but I'm going to do that this week. Um, and, and we're going to talk about spiritual motherhood. So here's the thing. Mother's Day sermons typically are always a little bit awkward in a way. Okay. They're always awkward in the sense that it seems like we are immediately alienating at least half of the congregation, right? Because for one, we're talking to mothers, uh, and, and there are many men who, despite what you may have heard in the news lately, cannot be mothers, um, are not mothers, will never be mothers. There are girls in the congregation who are too young to be mothers. There are people who might wish to be mothers and because of circumstances in life are not. There are those who have chosen not to be mothers for, for other circumstances, right? And so obviously there's this sort of weird balancing act that you do. We also recognize that when you talk about motherhood, man, there's many of us, myself included, who have lost a mother pretty recently. And so that changes the whole uh, feel of, of the day. And so anyway, there's just sort of this, there's this balancing act that you do a lot of times on Mother's Day sermons. But what I'm going to do today is I'm going to address motherhood from a, a little bit different concept. I'm going to talk about spiritual motherhood, all right? The idea of being a spiritual mother to someone. And so what I want to do is, is address the, the calling and the important for us to be 
um, or for women to be spiritual mothers to younger women in their lives. Um, and obviously there's, as in a way, um, that we can maybe generalize that principle and, and say, well, that includes also being spiritual fathers in ways, although we're going to be specifically addressing the idea of spiritual mothers, all right? And so for this, we're in Titus chapter 2. That's where we're going, Titus chapter 2. And let me state again up front, first by saying there's a little bit of, a, again, a weirdness of, um, and not to be too, you know, hip and whatever, but there's a little bit of mansplaining on Mother's Day, right? It's it's a little bit weird for me to stand here as a dude and tell you women about motherhood. That There's a little bit of a weirdness um, to that. But here's something interesting about this passage. I'm literally commanded to not so much mansplain you, but pastor-splain you, okay, at the beginning of this passage, all right? So look at Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So Titus is one of the books that we refer to as the pastoral epistles, along with 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. That's because they're written to pastors specifically. So Titus and Timothy are pastors in the early church. Paul is writing to them. And, and both of those, all three of those books, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, all sort of have the focus of talking about what it means to be a pastor, talking about the job description and the focuses and, and how you're supposed to live and how you're supposed to minister and all these th- different things like that, okay? There's more to them than that, but that's a big chunk of what's being talked about in the pastoral epistles. And so at the beginning of Titus 2, verse 1, it says this, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, okay? So he's starting off saying, pastor, it is your job to pastor splain. Okay, even to the women in your congregation about womanhood and motherhood, to the older men about fatherhood and manliness, right? Even though there are in in any given congregation, right, there are men that know way more about being a father than I know, um, who are who are a lot further down the road. There's certainly women who know a lot more about motherhood than I do, and yet there's still a calling in this passage, the beginning, to talk about those issues. Now, what we see immediately, though, is a specific, though, call to what I'm going to again call spiritual motherhood in this passage. Watch the wording as we go through, starting in verse 2. There's a subtle insight here that relates to this particular idea of spiritual motherhood. So first off, verse 2, what am I supposed to be teaching? If I'm a pastor who's supposed to be teaching what accords to sound doctrine, what am I supposed to be teaching to older men? All right. Well, older men are supposed to be sober-minded, it says, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So when a pastor teaches older men what accords with sound doctrine, those are some of the areas of emphasis, right? And we could go into all those. Like we could say, we could have a whole message about, you know, well, why does he zoom in on those things? Why are those particular issues in the life of, of older men? Um, or something like that, right? But that's not the direction we're going today. But I'm called to preach and teach older men to do these things in accord with sound doctrine. As a pastor, I engage with older women as well and teach them something in verse 3. Older women are likewise to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Now, again, when as a pastor, I talk to older women, about what accords with sound doctrines, those are some emphases that he is specifically saying we should talk about. Again, we could get into all kinds of questions about why are those things 
that Paul says, when you talk to older women, you need to make sure that you're, these are issues that are addressed, but that's not exactly the direction we're going to go tonight either. But then look what comes next, how it's worded. So it says, teach older men to do this, teach older women to do this. And then it says, they are to teach what is good. The teacher in the passage shifts. Did you notice that? It's no longer the pastor who is teaching, but the older woman who is now teaching. It says they, older women, are to teach what is good. Okay. Well, who? Who are they supposed to be teaching? It tells us. They are to teach what is good and so train the young younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So again, here's something that's interesting. It's not the pastor that he focuses on whose responsibility it is to teach the younger women in the church, but the older women who are to teach the younger women. And then right after that, the original pattern returns. The pastor is supposed to teach young men to act a certain way. The pastor is even supposed to teach bond servants or slaves to act in a certain way. But older women are called to mentor or teach the younger women. Now, why is that? Well, there's probably at least a couple of reasons. The first off, um, there were issues certainly of, of decency and propriety in a culture. Okay. We have integrated our culture between men and women so much to the extent that we forget that for most of human history, in most cultures, men and women who are not married and who are not family don't, they, they have limited time with each other, right? And usually chaperoned time with each other, right? Men and women don't just hang out and interact with each other as regularly and as freely and as unsupervised as we do in our culture today. That's just not the way it was. And so that was for a number of reasons, right? It's certainly to reduce temptation. It was to reduce accusation. We see that in the modern idea of what's sometimes called the Billy Graham rule about the idea that Billy Graham made a commitment in his ministry that he would not be alone with a woman in a, in a, a intimate kind of context or a, or shut off from everybody else kind of context that there would always be other people there when he was, when he was talking to, um, to a, a woman. Uh, I, I don't meet in private with women, right? If you come to me and say, Ash, I want to talk to you about something, theological thing, Bible study thing or whatever. I say, well, cool. We can do that in a couple different ways. We can either meet in a public place like Vienna where people can see us and hear us and things like that. Or we can get together at your house, but then my wife or your husband or something is going to be there with us and we're going to, that way we can have the conversation. Um, I try to, and I'm not always perfect about this. When I send one of you ladies a message, I try to CC your husband in on it oftentimes. Um, sometimes I don't do it if it's just something like real short, like you're like, Ash, the door's locked. And I'll be like, sorry. I don't say, hey, let's make sure your husband hears that I said sorry or whatever. I don't usually do that, right? But if I'm going to ask you a question or and I need to have a meeting with you or something, I sort of say, hey, you know, um, we need to get together and talk about this thing in the church, but I want your husband to know what's going on, okay? Because of the same kind of ideas here. So, again, so that's part of it. 
Propriety is important, but probably more centrally in this passage, women are called to teach younger women because women are able to speak more directly and more appropriately into the lives of younger women. Again, no matter how much our culture tries to tell us that this is not the case, men and women are different. We think differently. We relate differently. We experience life differently. We address conflict differently and a host of other things. Now, again, that doesn't mean that every single woman or every single man falls into the easily um, typical kind of uh, stereotypes of masculinity and femininity and all those things like that. But it does mean that this passage is at least reinforcing the idea that women have a special ability and a special responsibility to speak into the lives of younger women. So again, the whole time I've been in youth ministry, um, that's something that I have tried to do. If a, if, a, if a teenage girl comes to me and says, Ash, I need to talk to you about this issue, particularly if it is a sensitive issue, then I'll say, you know what you need to do? You probably need to talk to Miss So-and-so over here. I think that would be what's best. It would be way better for you to engage with her on that topic than it would me. Um, for all the reasons that we've just listed there. So I've tried to do that in, in, and throughout my, my youth ministry. Well, you might say, Ash, I, I appreciate that maybe you're saying I should be speaking into the lives of younger women as a woman, but I don't have any particular experience or expertise that would qualify me to do that. And again, I'm not saying that you are automatically biblically wise or mature or knowledgeable just because you're an older woman and they're a younger woman. Certainly there could be scenarios in which the younger woman is actually the, the more mature in the faith, potentially. But in general, if you're an older woman speaking to a younger one, you have a level of lived life, lived faith that you can impart, a level of shared experience that a man would not have, and that's invaluable, right? That can't be replicated um, by, by a pastor who is a guy. So I think there's a critical nature to spiritual motherhood. Man, women need older women or more mature in the faith women speaking into their lives. And again, critical in any time and place and culture in the history of the church, but particularly critical in the unprecedented confusion of the situation that we live in right now in our culture. So let me just draw a couple of things that the issues that, that, that have arisen, um, when it comes to marriage and gender and, and gender roles and all this stuff that, that play particularly in our culture. So one, there's the issue of, uh, of what we would probably call radical feminism. I'm not talking about equality under the law. I'm not talking about equality of compensation for equal work. Those are ideas of an earlier feminist um, idea. But I'm instead talking about this strange dissolving of the distinctives between male and female, men and women, that we have found in the more radical aspects of, of feminism that we see today. We see oftentimes an undermining of any kind of traditional role that men or women are have, have played or are biblically called to play, right? The idea that those roles don't exist and they shouldn't be encouraged. Moreover, 
They tend to, and, and this is sort of a, a, a strange byproduct, they tend to even destroy or at least reduce not only the differences between men and women, but at the same time, they elevate traditional masculine characteristics and devalue typical female characteristics. So basically, it is as if they are saying um, there's no distinction between men and women, but the things that women have normally done are worthless, and everybody should act the way men act. That should be the standard. Which is crazy, but it's, it's funny to notice this because when you go back to ancient philosophers, you see that a lot. When you go back to guys like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, there are these goofy ideas like, well, you know what? Women are just sort of like not quite fully formed men, right? They just, they're a little half-baked. They didn't quite get all of their stuff together. And so really the ideal would be, and those secular ancient philosophies would be that, yeah, women should just grow into manhood, essentially. Then they would be what they were intended to be. But Christianity has a completely different idea of that. Judaism has a completely different idea of that. It sees these complementary roles between the genders, right? That each one of them is bringing something that is made in the image of God and yet is necessary or also necessary, not yet is necessary, but also necessary for the full functioning of the home, the marriage, the, the society, the church, and everything else. And so, again, we live tragically in a, in a situation where women are only valuable if they demonstrate traditionally male characteristics. Instead of raising up women, it actually eliminates what is good and necessary in women. And so we live in a culture that is teaching women to be men, but we need women, particularly in the church, to be teaching other women how to be women. So that's part of the problem. Moreover, we have a culture in terms of our sexual revolution that has placed the focus of our lives on our individual sexual self-expression. So what I mean by that is more and more the world teaches us that what's truly important about you, what is truly central about you and your character and your being is your inner feelings about your autonomy and your sexuality. That's what makes you who you are. How you feel on the inside about your autonomy and your sexuality. That's affecting men, certainly, in our culture. And the consequences are, I think, going to be drastic and far-reaching. But it's affecting women significantly as well. One of the effects is that we have a culture, a world, in fact, and I don't know if you're aware of this, we have a world that is in a marriage and baby crisis. Do you know that? For generations, we've been talking about overpopulation, right? We've been talking about how, oh, we're in such trouble. There's going to be so many people on a planet, we just can't feed them all, and people stacked on top of each other, and garbage piling up to the, you know, moon, and there's no way we can handle all this. Turns out that's not the problem. The problem is, is we have a declining marriage rate and a collapsing birth rate worldwide. The marriage rate in the United States is the lowest that it's been in 120 years. People are waiting longer to be married, and fewer people are getting married. The fertility rate in the United States, and really around the world, is as low as it, as, as it has ever been. So again, people are waiting longer to have children, and ultimately they are having fewer children to the extent that we have fallen below what's called the replacement rate, which means as people die, 
we won't even be making enough new people to replace the ones who are dying, which means our population rate will continue to, cl- to decline. So you might say, Ash, that's okay. Maryville's too crowded as it is, right? I want fewer people, okay? That's a good thing, ultimately. But here's the deal. It isn't that simple because we've created a world that is run by people. And as people disappear and there's nobody to fill those spots, guess what happens? The world stops working. All kinds of things get left undone because there aren't people to do those things anymore. And so we see that we're in the middle of that. The baby boomer generation was one of the largest in history, but they are fast approaching their twilight years and we are not making enough people to replace them because our ideas about marriage, family, children have all shifted. Now, here's the deal, and, and you have to hear this, okay? Marriage and children are not ultimate values in the Christian faith. Hear me say that? Marriage and children are not ultimate values, meaning you don't have to be married and have children to be productive in right relationship with God or anything like that. In fact, the Bible dignifies and even to some extent encourages singleness. Talks about the fact that if as single people and people without children, we have more energy to devote solely to God, whereas rightly as married people with children, we have to devote a lot of our energy to our spouses and our children. And so again, we are in no way saying marriage and family are necessary for a faithful life. But again, that's not really what the problem is. The problem is, is we have a culture that sees marriage and family as hindrances in life. And in extreme cases, not just hindrances, but moral evils, that it is wrong to marry, that that is a form of, of bondage or something like that, that it is wrong to reproduce because you are putting more of a strain on our planet in some ways. That's the kind of discussion that is is problematic. And so the, that gender and marriage crisis that has exploded or crashed has sort of culminated, I think, in many ways in what we would now call the transgender movement. And so here's an interesting thing, too. And this speaks directly to the role of spiritual motherhood, okay, directly. So adult male transgenderism is what gets all the press, okay? That's the that's the stuff that we see on the news that pe- gets people upset. Drag queen story out. Men and fe- men, men using female bathrooms and locker rooms. Male athletes competing against women in female sporting events. That's what gets all the news, all the press, all the energy. But those instances are actually a fraction of the larger issue. They're certainly important, but they are sort of the sensational side of this whole movement. You know where the core is in terms of at least numbers? Where most people who are identifying as transgender are coming from, the far and away largest group is teenage girls. Far and away. I can't remember the numbers, and obviously it depends on what part of the country you live in. It depends on which state. It depends on which school and everything. But there are cases that are out there where a certain school system will report that 40% of their female students identify as transgender. 40%, okay? That's crazy, okay? That's that's total nonsense. There is no possible way 
that that could be a result of, of the psychological disorder that we call gender dysmorphia. There's no way in which we went from like 0.1% of little boys having that disorder to 40% of all teenage girls having that disorder. Statistically impossible. And that point, it points to the larger reality that while a certain small percentage of people do suffer from that gender uh, dysphoria, the vast majority are victims of something like a social contagion. The reality is, is it is demonstrated, this research, that teenage girls are particularly susceptible to mass social contagion. So what does that mean? We've actually seen it over and over again for decades in all kinds of other situations. Young women, for some reason, are uniquely and particularly susceptible to going along with social trends and movements that are going on in a larger culture. So for all kinds of things, we have seen over the decades, whole groups of young women within a school system or within a church or within a community, whole groups of them all of a sudden start acting the same way. All of a sudden, they're all anorexic together. They're all sexually active at the same time. They all start cutting or exhibiting some other kind of self-harm behavior, or they all become trans together. Someone is telling these girls how to live. Somebody is. They are being taught by someone what is good and right and normal. And again, we know who it is. It is out there. It's, you know, again, not trying to sound like too old a man or whatever, right? But it's the internet. It's influencers. It's politics. It's the corporate world. It's the media world. It is basically every major institution in our culture has bought whole hog into a movement because they see themselves as somehow the next generation of civil rights leaders, right? Like they are thinking to themselves by supporting these causes, one day they're going to build a statue to me in Washington, D.C., right? And I'm going to be the guy, I'm going to be the Martin Luther King of my generation, but it's not going to be on race issues. It's going to be on sexual issues. When in fact, what they are actually doing is destroying the lives of millions of young girls in the current generation. So what I would say is church, women in the church, we must speak into their lives. We have to uplift the biblical virtues of faithfulness, of God's designed identity for them, of chastity, of marriage, of motherhood, of servanthood, of sacrifice, because they will hear none of those messages from our culture. None of them. Now, that's the critical nature of spiritual motherhood. So what does it look like? What's the content of that spiritual motherhood. Again, we don't have a ton of time, but let's just hit some of those big points. Just like we said, we could do that with the old men or the older women or the younger men. Let's hit the big points that he mentions in for older women teaching younger women. So verse three, the second half of verse three, three B. At one level, the content of spiritual motherhood 
is, is the full counsel of God. That's what older women should be teaching younger women. The full counsel of God, right? Not just one thing, not just this thing about identity or womanhood or anything, but, but the full counsel of God. It's to teach everything that God has commanded to live faithfully. So that's what he says in verse 3b. What does he says? They are to teach what is good. That's a pretty broad thing, right? Mothers, spiritual mothers, teach younger women what is good. And the content of what is good is the word of God. But he zooms in on some things too. So he says this, verse four. And so train young women to love their husbands and children. It's pretty simple. Love sacrificially, serve their husbands and their childrens. The reality is this. We see this in other places in scripture. Your first commitment as a married person, is to your spouse and your children. Now, obviously, God comes first in all situations. But you have a unique responsibility now to your spouse and to your children. Women have a particular responsibility to their husbands and their children. Not your parents. Not your family of origin. Not your friends but to your husband and your children. So as an aside, this is just something that that uh, you might say, well, well Ash, uh, what if I'm a single woman speaking into the life of a, of a married woman? Is that, a, is that a problem? How can I rightly speak into their life on these things? Well, the answer is right there. You still teach them the same thing. You might say, well, I'm not a married person. I don't have children, but you know what I can do? I can still teach young women to love their husbands and their children. Christy and I, a couple of times in our marriage, have come across a friend who has sought counsel with us. And what basically we have discovered is, is there's been a couple of times where a young woman, a young married woman, has come and said, I'm having problems in my marriage. We're looking at divorce or whatever. And then one of the questions that we ask at some point is say, well, who are you talking to? Right? Who are you talking to about these things? And, and several of the times the answer is, well, I'm talking to all my young single women friends. And that's where I'm getting all my ideas about who I should be, what's important, how I should live my life, how he should treat me, how I should treat him, who, all those things like that, right? Man, and, and in, in those, both those cases, it, it is the, the relationship ended in divorce. And both times we counseled the person and said, we love you, but you got to stop talking to your single friends. Okay. Because they are going to lead you down the wrong path. Now, again, does that mean that they had to? No, they could have followed what the Bible said. Those young single friends could have taught them what the scriptures say, but they didn't. Just for the record, it goes the other way too. I have counseled young men and they were thinking about divorce and he was talking to them, all their single bros, right? Dude, man, get back out here with us. That's the way the world ought to work. Yep. Don't talk to your single friends unless they are going to give you the counsel of God. If you are a single person, give your friends the counsel of the word of God. Single women encourage married women to live faithfully. Married women encourage single women to live faithfully. Married women encourage single, encourage people to live faithfully according to the word of God. That's what we do. Okay, verse five. Be self-controlled and pure. 
Is that because young women have a particular problem with being self-controlled and pure? This is a fun thing. You might notice if you go back and read this passage, that is advice that he gives to every single category. He gives old men that advice, young men that advice, young women that advice, and basically older women that advice. So he doesn't use the word self-control, but he's basically saying, yeah, you need to be self-controlled, okay? You know why? Because we all need to be told to be self-controlled. We need to be mature in our faith and our mind. We need to keep our speech and our actions on a pretty short leash. That's the way we need to live our lives. So he says, older women in the faith teach younger women in the faith to be self-controlled, and that will lead to purity. 5B, second half of five, teach them working at the home, working in the home. And you might go, ooh, Ash, you done gone meddling now, right? Um, what are you going to say about that? Women working in the home, not outside the home? What, what, what are we supposed to think about those things? Well, here's the deal. I think, and obviously there are different views on this. There are more conservative views and there are less conservative views. I think a married woman with children that her work life is very complex. Um, I think that we can make blanket statements about that and we can err on either side. So we can sort of say, no, a woman's place is barefoot in the kitchen. We can have that variety, right? Or we can have this other, maybe a more liberal or progressive variety that says, no, working in the home is basically modern day slavery. Um, literally, uh, John Stuart Mill, I don't know if you've ever heard of John Stuart Mill, philosopher, right? Quote from him. He said, there remains no legal slaves except the mistress of every house. Okay? Um, that would be the extreme position over here, right? That the only, which is first off, it's stupid, because there's still lots of slavery in the world. I don't know if you knew that. There's actually more slavery today than there has ever been in the history of the world. Um, but in John Stuart Mill's mind, the only slaves that exist are housewives. I think the biblical witness on this is more multifaceted. And many of our assumptions are not necessarily biblical assumptions. They're probably post-industrial revolution modernist assumptions in all kinds of different ways, right? We can go to that Proverbs 31 woman, right? And see, man, there's at least some things in there that would say she seems to be working outside of the home in, in, in various ways, okay? There's all kinds of stuff that we could get into here. And honestly, I'm not going to stick my foot in it. Um, but... Here is the larger truth. Married women, particularly with children, have a unique and proper role in the life and economy of the home. Okay? Um, again, we could talk further about other pieces, but it suffice it to say they have a particular place and role in the home. The home works in a certain way when they are there and doing the work of the home. And we should encourage women in that. Again, a million different scenarios, all kinds of things happen. We don't, we can't make a blanket rule necessarily, but we should encourage women that the life of the home is worth living. Okay. It's not something that should be shunned. Again, I remember having conversations with Christy where she would talk about um, when she was in college and she would have certain female professors at Auburn who would basically say things like, you are wasting your life if you want to be a, a mom and a housemaker, right? That, you, that that would be a waste of your potential 
to give yourself to your children? What a man, what a waste, right? And we say as followers of Jesus Christ, the opposite. We say, man, that is a noble, beautiful, high calling for mothers to give their lives to their husbands, children, and homes, all right? Not the only noble life, but certainly a good thing. 5B, continuing on in 5B, working at home and submissive to their own husbands. And you're like, Ash, you just keep digging the hole, right? Like we just keep on getting further and further into it. And the truth is, again, man, I don't have time to walk through the minefield that is the concept of uh, submission in a marriage, of wives submitting to their husbands, husbands respecting their wives and uh, husbands loving their wives. I don't, I don't have time to get into that in the, in the, few lines that we have in this part. But here's something, here's the short version. You ready? Here's the short version. Husbands, sacrificially lead your families. Wives, let them. Okay? That's the simple version. Husbands, sacrificially lead your families. And wives, let them lead. Okay? Let them do that. Don't try to... Mess that up. Don't try to overshadow that. Don't try to to let them lead your families. Again, we could get into all kinds of things, special circumstances, how that all plays out, what the relationships look like. We don't have time for it today. And that's not the point. The point is, older women, you should be teaching younger women that the home is a good place, that it's worth giving your life to, and that you have roles and responsibilities when it comes to a family to a husband, to your children. Let your husbands lead and husbands sacrificially lead your families. And this is the last one. Verse five, I guess we'd be on like D or something. It'd be like five C or D or E. I don't know. There's a bunch of different clauses in, in, in verse five. But he says this. Why should we teach them all these things that we've just said? That the word of God may not be reviled. So here's an interesting thing, and I think this sort of sums up part of the issue with all of it. We live in a culture currently that sees that life as ugly and beneath people and um, oppressive, all of that life of the family, okay? That you would talk, if you went out and did, you know, one of those interviews on the on the sidewalk at the beach or whatever, and you're talking to a young woman and you said, what do you think? about the traditional views of marriage and family. What do you believe about getting married and having children and working in the home, whatever? They would revile it, many of them. I think they would, okay? They would say, oh, that's not for me. It's ugly. It's oppressive. That's modern-day slavery. That's all those things. I'm better than that. My life is more important than those things. They would say all of those things. And I wonder if that is not at least partially because, obviously it's because of lots of things, but because we do a poor job of presenting the goodness of those things to the younger world, okay? That the reason they think those things are worthless is because we have treated them sometimes like they are worthless, right? If all your 
um, your own children or children in general, the world in general, all they ever hear is people complaining about their marriages, complaining about their relationships, complaining about the responsibilities of home and family. We watch sitcoms about these, you know, bumbling characters who are just meandering through life and, and they're just all um, upset about having these things and responsibilities. And the dad is looking for every single opportunity he can to escape any kind of responsibility. And the mom's put out by this scenario. And we can think of any of pretty much a hundred, you know, or a thousand sitcoms from the last, say, 40 years that would present that picture. And it seems like it makes sense that people would go, yeah, I think the word of God is revived, that the world looks on and goes, this standard that the Bible upholds is ugly, and I don't want to be a part of that. And yet he's saying, teach young women these things and do it well so that they will see the goodness of it, so that the world will, when we tell them about the beauty of motherhood and marriage and and the life of the home, they won't say, oh, that didn't sound like it. I don't want to do that. Instead, they'll go, I kind of wish I had that life. I wish that was something that I could uh, achieve or attain to or, or that I would have in my life one day. That that would be a good thing, a goal. Again, not the only way to live a life. Certainly not the only way to live a life. Our model of how to live a life, Jesus never married, never had physical earthly children. But you know what? He did have many spiritual children. And that's kind of what we're calling, we're called to in this passage. You may not be a, a mother physically, but you can be, and you are called to be a spiritual mother to somebody. Men, by extension, we are called to be spiritual fathers, people. Paul talks about that in various ways. He says it to Timothy, that he has been a spiritual father to Timothy that he's poured into his life and taught him the word of God. We're called to do that also as men to younger men. So what I want to do is as we go to the Lord now in a time of prayer, um, I just want you to hold on to these ideas in your head. Um, Think about the calling that you have on your lives in these things. Young women who are in this room, right? Um, Teenage uh, women who are in this room, you have a calling on this too, right? You may or may not realize it, but there are younger women who are less mature in the faith than you are who are looking to you as well, right? All it takes, um, I, I love going, so my girls are in ballet, right? I love going to ballet and watching the dynamics, okay? Because not in the actual ballet productions, but backstage with all of the people because you watch these little girls walking around just like looking up at these older girls who are doing these different things, okay? And here's the reality, and I'm sure this is this case, and I'm not thinking about anybody individual or whatever, so don't, like, go back and be like, ooh. Um, sometimes those older girls are probably not the best people that they, other girls should be looking up to, right? Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes they're great people to be looking up to, right? The <laughs> concern and the care that those little girls have, but I, I say that this to you young ladies, is – You've got people looking up to you too, okay? And again, he's probably not quite thinking exactly of you when he says older women, okay? That's not what he's thinking. But what I'm saying is these relationships exist on that spectrum wherever you're at. Um, There's probably always going to be somebody who is younger than you who is looking up to you saying, man, how should I deal with my life in these ways? And you can be a voice into those places too, where you can come along and say, I encourage you to do what's good. I encourage you to follow the Lord in all these things. 
um, and, and to model your life after what Christ has called us to. So anyway, what I want to do is go to the Lord in prayer, um, ask that God would um, keep our hearts focused on these things, that we would recognize that calling that we have to be spiritual mentors in other people's lives, and that you can start thinking about those people in your life probably who are already looking up to you as a spiritual mentor and how you can speak the truth of God's word into their life and lead them in righteousness. So let's do that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer um, and ask that he would work these things in our hearts and lives. Father God, again, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the role of mothers in our lives. We thank you for our physical mothers um, who have um, who have nurtured us and borne us and taught us and, and cared for us over our lives. God, we pray for um, a blessing upon um, our mothers. God, we, we also thank you for the women who are not our actual mothers. Um, but who have played the role of a mother in our lives. We thank you for grandparents and aunts and uncles. God, we thank you for teachers and counselors and faithful uh, church members. God, we thank you for, for team uh, captains and, and coaches. God, we thank you for, um, in, in various ministry contexts, we thank you of those women who were leaders in those places, speaking truth into the lives of those younger women who were um, coming along beside them. God, we thank you for the role that you have of, of using women to lead and teach women in, in what is good and godly. Father, we ask that you would bless them in those endeavors, that you would give women a heart uh, to, to spiritually mentor the next generation as they come. Father, that you would help us as men to do the same in the opportunities that we have. Father, we have a world that is, is confused about the meaning of manhood, about the meaning of womanhood, about the meaning of marriage, about the meaning of being a father or a mother. God, help us to live lives that model this and help us to teach your truth and train up the next generation. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song. I work this in what I am. I am But it's I work this 
I rejoice in my reading in this You go ahead and have a seat. Uh, we're going to do real quick. We want to just recognize and pray for um, our uh, graduating high school seniors. And so we've got a couple of them tonight um, that basically what I want to do and the reason why we are doing it is because obviously we want to honor them and congratulate them on, on what they've achieved. But also what I want you to do is I want you to kind of get eyes on these young people. I want you to know their faces. I want you to know their names because I want you to be praying for them because as per the entire sermon, they are going out into a world, um, that is, uh, very confused about everything pretty much. Okay. Um, and as, as confused as we've been in a long time, uh, about everything. And so I want you to be asking that God would help them to be faithful in the places that they are going, that they would, 
um, as they head off to schools and 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 work and, and all the different things that they're going to be endeavoring towards, um, that they would be, get connected to churches and ministries in those places where there would be spiritual mentors who could pour into their life, that could hold them accountable, that could keep them um, close to Christ and close to his church and close to his word, and that we would think and pray and ask God that he would do these things, okay? And so um, what I'm going to do is we've also got a little gift for you and just some books that have, have been influential in my life, and I hope they'll be an encouragement to you uh, in this first year of your, I think all four of our students are, are heading to college probably in the near future, and so um, they'll be an encouragement to you as you step out into those campuses. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to call your name, and I'm going to ask if you'll just come up, I'll if you'll just kind of line up there, uh, two of you over here and two of you over here, and you can come up here in front of the stage and just kind of line up. So uh, first, we've got Noah Shreve. Um, so Noah is a homeschool graduate, and he will be heading to Tennessee Tech in in the fall. Thank you, sir. Congratulations. You just hang out down there. Okay. Go and grab all of them. Um, uh, next, we've got Ben Hessick. Ben is also a homeschool graduate, and he will also be attending Tennessee Tech. And man, that's a good little thing right there. You know, you already got connections. You already got somebody to keep you accountable. Um, you know, to say, hey, maybe that's not what we should be doing Friday night. Like, let's just let's 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 go do something else. Mario Kart was very helpful for me as a young college guy. You know, Friday night, let's play some Mario Kart. So, thanks, sir. All right, the twin Maya Hessick. Congratulations. So Maya's headed to ETSU, right? There you go. Congratulations. And lastly, so this one is a, uh, a graduate, graduate unnaturally born, um, as the, the Paul would talk about himself as an apostle. So this, uh, we're going to have Jack actually come up. Jack's family. So Jack are, are not regular attenders of our church. And the reason is because his family are missionaries in Greece. And so he is typically overseas. He's he's graduating as a – do you do homeschool there or do you kind of do like a – Yeah, online school. Okay. Um, but but he's graduating from there. But a guy that, that has been a close friend of our family, and so as they are back in the States doing visa um, reworking stuff or whatever, he's graduating. He's heading to Grove City College, um, which is Pennsylvania, right, um, in the fall. And so we just want to encourage him and, and congratulate him too. And so – there you are, sir. Congratulations. Um, so again, um, I want you um, to get a look at these people. Remember their names. Ben, Noah, Maya, Jack. Okay. Bring them before the Lord in prayer. Um, say, God, help these young men to stay faithful to Jesus Christ. Help these young women to stay faithful to Jesus Christ as they enter into this next stage of life. Um, and that no matter where they are, no matter what they're doing, that Jesus Christ would be centered, okay? Um, I'm going to ask you guys to come down here and kind of stand in the middle of the room a little bit. Um, I'm going to ask y'all to get in a little circle, and then I'm going to ask congregants, families, just come up and kind of circle around them, um, and we're just going to pray together.
All right, let's pray to God. Father God, we thank you for this day. God, I thank you for these um, young men, uh, for this young woman. God, we thank you for uh, their families. We thank you that uh, you have uh, providentially, um, God, nurtured and led them through their families, through their churches, that you have raised them and protected them and, and brought them to this point. Father, we ask that we would continue to remember them in prayer, that we would continue to remember them in, in encouraging them, uh, that we would continue to check in and, and just be a voice of, of um, concern and encouragement in their lives. But God, that you would protect them as they go forward, as they are entering new opportunities and, and taking new adventures. Um, God, we pray that you would just bless them um, preserve them, God, connect them to yourself and to your church, and that you would just bless them in, in all the incredible things that I know that you have for them. Um, God, you are good and gracious and faithful. Uh, we believe that you love our children more than we love our children. God, that you want what is good for them even more than we want what is good for our own children. And so, God, we ask that you would um, just be yourself in that. Uh, that you would love these young people, watch over them, and protect them. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, thank you. Um, hope you have a great night. Here's this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. See you next week. Mm -hmm.